Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our behind-the-scenes interviews with the sound designer for Yorgos Lanthimos' new film, The Favorite, Johnny Byrne, and the editor, Yorgos Mavroparsidis. Dearest queen, how goes the kingdom? Did you just look at me? Stop it! I am the queen. But you are mad. <laughs> All right, everyone, I am being joined right now by Yorgos Mavropartsidis, and he is the editor for Yorgos Lanthimos on many of his films, including Dogtooth, The Lobster, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, and their latest collaboration together is on The Favorite. I have Yorgos here with me right now. Yorgos, how are you today? Fine. Fine. How are you, Matt? I'm doing really well. Thank you for calling me. Yeah. No, absolutely. It's really, really wonderful to be speaking with you. I have to say that Yorgos Lanthimos has emerged in the last couple of years as one of my favorite filmmakers to watch. And seeing as how you have worked on all of his films, uh, pretty much, I guess you're an extension of, of what makes him so acclaimed and beloved by the filmmaking community. So it's really, really great to be able to get a chance to speak with one of his closest collaborators. I want to first start off by asking you, how did you get into film editing and how did you meet Yorgos Lanthimos? Right. I, I first I studied uh, drama in Athens and uh, theater, I mean. And then uh, after I graduated, I went to London, studied in the London International Film School. John Fletcher was the director at the time. I stayed in London for five years. Difficult times at the time. I had to return to Greece, so I started working in the commercial industry. When I started, like uh, around 19, I'm quite old, so I started quite on 37 years ago, like 1982, working in the commercial industry. And somehow I'm I'm kind of in the middle between the previous generation of filmmakers and the newer ones, which is represented by Lanthimos. So I came acquainted with the filmmaking process in Greece, with working with very good directors like Yorgos Panosopoulos was one famous one, Perakis and uh, other great directors. So what they transmitted to me and uh, what I found in common with when I met Lanthimos was the passion for the work. We met doing commercials. I'm, I'm somehow I did his first commercial, for example. And of course, I did a lot of commercials of younger generation. But from what I have seen after all these years is that I think Yoro's talent has matured enormously, mainly because he's very devoted to, to, to what he does from his early years. Even, you know, and he, he had a very practical, precise plan in somehow to use, and I did as well, because, you know, we we went to, to we came to the cinema because we loved making movies, but we had to work on the commercial business, which was a bit different. But we found like friends in this difficult environment to try to 
you know, implement our own ideas about filmmaking, even if we do commercials, which was really funny. But uh, somehow we did succeed in creating, even, even in commercial industry, Yorgos created a very specific style of his comedy all those years we worked together. And also it was a very big practice for him. Imagine every year to do about like 100 days of uh, shooting every year. Mm-hmm. An enormous uh, practice. Uh, then at the time, of course, in that, I'm not speaking for the man. I'm just making an interpretation with my, you know, limited knowledge. I don't claim to know him as, you know, as somebody can know a, a, a human being. But uh, I did understand at the time that, because I felt it as well, we were um, somehow feeling the crisis coming to Greece before it came. And that crisis was mainly a moral or aesthetic crisis. I mean, everybody was getting ready to, you know, to do something about all these Olympics. And, you know, there was no quality somehow in, in uh, you know, in, in the work. And also, he, I guess he was fed up doing the same, the same. So he wanted to develop his own language. So we did after, um, you know, a half film, let's say, that the commercial film that he got involved, and we did Kineta together, which was... Um, uh, a very low budget film. I think they only had twenty thousand uh, to, to do it. Uh, the page, the, the, the script was sixteen pages. It was mostly, um, you know, rehearsing in the shooting and improv- improvising. The, the camera work was very rough and uh, handheld. Uh, when we first edited the first uh, the first rough cut, it was about four hours, so we had to take another film out of the film to make it, you know, like a one. But already I discerned some uh, specific sensibilities in Yorgos, but also a very strong formal approach. Mm-hmm. Then came uh, Kinoda, uh, Doctus. I, I said I said that's in Greek, Doctus, which was. Um, an extremely new film, and I had to, like for example, I remember my assistant saying, me, "What are you going to do?" I mean, there was no continuity editing. So there was nothing that, you know, before I started editing during the assembly, he sent he he sent me the script, and it was all all, all scenes were in different order. Like he was saying to me, "Don't follow this order. We'll find it through, you know." Because I, I understood that he had done, he had thought he wanted to, you know, to create some mood, some to to to, to elicit, elicitate some things from from some atmosphere. But maybe he had done what four scenes saying the same. So the combination of this or the other scene and the order created a lot of the tension that you know we wanted to create with uh, with doctors. But also it was the first time when we consciously started finding a specific. Lanthimian way of, you know, editing or presenting the the, the situation, which was uh, you cannot define it, you know, in terms as as rules, but we can say we have certain rules somehow. But mainly, it's uh, you know, he he's always trying not to. He doesn't want that, and I don't want that to be too obvious. He does want to make the experience. Sometimes difficult, maybe if you can say it like that. But that, for me, it's it's a, it's a very moral attitude because it makes the viewer come consciously to his work and decide consciously because he does get affected somehow 
and maybe what gets affected is something that he would rather not, you know, talk about. <laughs> maybe. I don't know. Sure. He has a method and he has a specific uh, vision, I think. And this vision goes with him and, and, and it matures as he goes along his way, I think. Oh, yeah. And you can tell that when you watch his films that they're very immersive and very distinct and there is a clear vision and voice behind them. I think that is what has made him stand out very much to everyone. Your latest film, though, The Favorite, um, has stood out in many ways uh, compared to the previous work. Some people have claimed that it is uh, more mainstream in a few ways compared to the uh, earlier films. I'd like to think of it more so as uh, Yorgos is doing what Yorgos has always done, uh, but just with different uh, paintbrushes this time around, so to speak. For you, though, you, you definitely have uh, quite a task with the favorite here because you essentially have three lead characters in Rachel Weisz, Emma Stone, and Olivia Coleman that you, as an editor, have to give kind of equal balance to in the editing room. Now, can you talk to me a little bit about from the screenplay to the editing room? Uh, was it always equally balanced between the three ladies, or was that something that was found in the editing room in terms of making sure that each one of them had their own points of view and everything conveyed as 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 well as it could be to the viewer in terms of this is not just one of their stories, this is all three of their stories? It was very specific from the first moment. Uh, I must tell you, I, I came into the favorite after Yorgos has done a fourth month work, kind of rough cut, but as, when I came to London, I was presented with a rough cut uh, with music as well, so I did see a complete film before I even read the script. So you see, my impression was... Oh, wow. Uh, Yorgos wanted me to have this first impression. So you were brought on a little bit later for this? Yes. Uh, the assembly was done uh, during... Because I was stayed I stayed behind to finish the post-production of, uh, of uh, the deer, of the sacred deer, because Yorgos was shooting in March, and the deer was not ready then. <laughs> But then uh, the assembly was done, and uh, also a kind of rough cut uh, in, in London. And I came to London in July, and we finished something like early uh, January, so it was more than six months' work together. But the, uh, the, from the first moment, we did discuss about, you know, the difficulty we would have creating the, the, this uh, balance between between them, the, the three of them being true to to their true self, and also not try to make the intention, say, of the characters, uh, like you know, paper text, make it so obvious. Because Yorgos um, believes, and I think he he's right, and I believe it too, that human beings, characters, as we say, are very flexible and fluid things. Mm. We like to think they have. Uh, you know, like very big characteristics. Of course, they do, and their characteristics are deep, deeper, deeper inside them influence their their actions. But they can be human beings can be very unpredictable, and maybe Sarah, who seems like you know a very strong woman, can have equally moments of uh, very sensitive, very sensitive moments, and uh, the queen can have sudden realizations of her of her uh, situation, and and you know, and also Abigail, and mainly in this film, nothing was I think is was very interested in the way that the the characters not only develop from here to there, but also what do they realize about themselves 
during this process. And I do believe that all three of them have moments of self-consciousness of where they are and how they came into this moment and if they're satisfied with that or the other, especially towards the end of the film. I also want to talk about pacing too because maybe it's you know due to the comedy of this film uh, compared to some of the more darker, more serious work in something like The Killing of a Sacred Deer. I feel like The Favorite has a more frantic pace to it right from the very first scene and it keeps that up all the way until the end. Uh, did you notice that there was a difference there uh, between the films? And if so, how did you guys go about finding that? Yeah, we did. What we do with the other normally is we do the assembly or the rough cut according to the script. But then we have to, then we experiment. We change a lot of the order of the scenes. Like, for example, the, this decision to make it equal, it, starts, it started from the beginning. In the script, we came together with Abigail. The script was more directed towards the, the motivations and the, what happens to the young woman to come to the palace. But we changed. Mm -hmm. We started. Uh, expressing, because we like to do that, a thesis. Like, uh, we said, okay, this is not a film starting with the queen and asking, you know, do you love me? Or, oh, yeah, this is love. You don't start with a film saying, okay, this is a film about a girl coming to a court and whatever. It says, it says this is a film about love. So it's a different approach. And, of course, this changes the continuation of the film. You have to, you know, we do like to, to make, he always likes to make his... Um, interpretation of the situation be known to the audience, not very obviously, but through the camera work, through the editing, through the music, through the distance it takes sometimes, through the aesthetic pleasure you, he gives us sometimes. He does express his own, you know, worldview about what he sees and about human beings. Oh, yeah, no, I, I definitely got, get a sense of that through his work as well. Two questions I like to ask every editor that comes on the show. Mm -hmm. What was the hardest scene to edit, and what was the hardest scene to let go on the cutting room floor? Well, Yorgos has a very, like, you know, we have this degree of uh, difficulty in, in exercises. He has a very difficult ed <laughs> exercise to try because he likes to decompose things. Okay, we'll compose it, we'll strike. Okay, let's try something opposite that. Let's do, you know, the difficult scene to get the for the specific film to get the feeling because we we had in mind uh, as you said the rhythm the rhythm was already there in the in the shooting in the in the, the deliverance of the dialogue so we had to follow the rhythm but then you know the, the, the emotional rhythm as well the difficult scene formally it was the you know when Abigail and Massamara in the woods he had in mind an old Greek director Damianos Evokia it's a very you know well known Greek film, you know, a cult film, and he said, Okay, I want to do something like that. <laughs> so I did about, I don't know how many edits, <laughs> around 40 edits to to come to conclusion. Oh, wow. Uh, to take out, no, I didn't feel like that, that, that we, okay, there was some, no, I don't feel we lost something that, you know, I felt, uh, no, I think it was, uh, it was needed in a sense, but, you know. Well, maybe one, maybe one scene with maybe one long shot with Abigail, another nice exterior of the palace. Maybe that, but on the whole, no, I'm not. I, I forgot already what we got. <laughs> on to the next thing, right? <laughs> I got to ask about the final shot mm -hmm. and the final cross dissolve. Mm -hmm. 
Can you tell me anything about the meaning behind that shot and what it represents and the feeling that Yorgos intended for us to leave the theater on with that shot? Because I think it's one of the most spellbounding uh, shots I have seen in a movie this year. And that effect is really, really resonated with me. So I'm really curious to know anything more about that. Well, I think it's one of these uh, signs that uh, Latimus likes to put that uh, multi-faced, and 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 then they 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 have to they have to be understood or seen can be seen with different interpretations. But the the codes or the signs that I would I would try to connect maybe is of course they're rabbits, and then rabbits represent something for the queen. Uh, but you know something abortive in a sense, some uh, love affair that didn't bring forth fruit. Ah, uh, didn't bring forth children, so to speak, no. which is how she views <laughs> the rabbits. No, but <laughs> multiple impressions, but empty. And yeah, you can see it in the faces of the of the two women we who are you know realizing at that moment where they are, especially Abigail has a very nice shot, a long shot where her eye tweaks a bit. Very esoteric, uh, very esoteric uh, play from uh, from Emma Stone. Yeah, because I looked at it like Abigail has won, mm-hmm. uh, but at the end of the day, Olivia Coleman can see through everything that she has done, and she's basically putting her in her place despite everything that she has done to get to the point where she's at. And I love that it com- it comes back to the bunnies that mm-hmm. yeah. th- this queen who everybody is like trying to gain the favor of in the movie. They'll mm-hmm. never have the love and affection that she has for those bunnies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So you see, I also think it represents a, a, a place in Yorgos' career at the moment. You see, he's he is a human being that uh, feels and reacts to what happens. So you know, imagine him being in this situation. So he has feelings about it as well. So he questions that as well. Interesting. <laughs> so that's another maybe. Thing because you know he does get to he does like to to be himself you know of course you know it's the construction of this world it's uh, it has to be a consonant with his own feelings and his own being at the moment mm-hmm. somehow so 2016 the lobster 2017 the killing of a sacred deer 2018 the favorite 2019 anything. He doesn't say. <laughs> he says, you know, be available. He has about five projects. We'll see what happens next. At the moment, I'm on another project, so getting time off. Yeah, but you'll definitely continue to work with him now. Of course, yes. We're very good friends as well, so. Other than uh, Yorgos, though, do you have any other projects lined up with any other filmmakers? Or yeah, I mean, I'm, you... I'm, I'm, now, I'm now on the edit of a film that is being shot in uh, Norway. Uh, it's called The Suicide Tourist by Jonas Alexander Anby. Wow. Uh, like the director, so you know they're shooting in Norway. I'm doing the assembly here in December. I have to go to Copenhagen to finish it off. January, I'll be talking about my next one, but I don't know what that will be. <laughs> have time for you know, <laughs> next spring. Well, we definitely look forward to more of the work that you provide and definitely for more of your work uh, with Yorgos Lanfamos. Uh, Yorgos, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for calling. Thank you. Absolutely. Best of luck with the movie. Audiences are definitely enjoying it. So are the critics. And that's always a gratifying thing to hear, I'm sure. So congratulations and uh, good luck with everything. Thank you very much. Thank you. We went for something dramatic. Ah! 
Majesty. I'd like to enjoy the music now. This is madness. Sometimes a lady likes to have some fun. So, Johnny, I see you have uh, done at least two more, two other films with Yorgos Lanthimos before, and so I just kind of wanted you to talk about how this production was different than those previous work you've done. Um, I guess, um, yeah, it was different because, um, I mean, taking the Killing of a Sacred Deer, for example, it was, um, there was a lot of um, times we could kind of throw in slightly abstract sounds and, and um, distort the perspective through the use of sound a little bit. Whereas here, um, you're very much dealing with a, a point in history that people, are, people know what things sounded like in those days and there, there were not a lot of kind of machinery or, or, um, or, or, or other sound sources that you could use to, to manipulate the interpretation of the image in the way that you might want to. Um, so we were kind of left with um, designing a mood for the the house, the palace that we that we wanted, and and deciding how we were going to use sound to support the dramatic action, but only with a kind of uh, a list of tools of kind of things like fireplace winds and winds behind the behind the windows and windows rattling, pots rattling, and and uh, and and that kind of stuff. So it it was basically different, I suppose, because we were limited in the amount of sound sources we had to. To, uh, to tackle the need to support dramatic action. Does that kind of answer the question? Or... It does, yep. Yep, I know that you guys had kind of li limitations due to what, you know, the environment you were working in. Um, did you have to deal with a lot of echoes from those giant rooms? Well, it was funny. The um, Yeah, the rooms are huge. I mean, they've got a real massive load of tapestries on the walls, which are very good at soaking up the, the sound. And... And the big wigs, particularly that the men were wearing, were very good at hiding microphones, so you could get quite close to the source of the sound. So the the, the dialogue was a wonderful job done by Rashad Omar, the production mixer. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of echo, and and um, the obviously the the job of the sound recordist is to go down there and get the best possible recording he can get of the dialogue, and all the other kind of noisy things like footsteps are kind of taped up with rubber so that you you kind of preserve the dialogue as much as possible. Um, so my team and I went down uh, towards the end of the shoot and after people had moved out of the a room, we'd go in and, and record all the kind of the doors and the footsteps in a very clean way with the microphone, sort of very close to the proximity of what you wanted to hear so that we could then manipulate the amount of reverb and echo and all that kind of stuff we had afterwards. No, they, they were big echoey rooms. And, and one, of the, um, one of the main features of the dialogue tracks as they came out on the kind of clean clean recordings of the rushes was you could tell that the floorboards are very creaky so there was an awful lot of dialogue editing that had to go on to sort of work around creaks did you uh have to record a lot of like the you know there's lots of crackling fires and the little thumps from the bunnies and you know the eating and all of those little sounds did you have to record those separately and then layer them in or was that something you were able to catch on set very much all recorded afterwards yeah i mean pretty much the 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 only thing that that came from the recordings of the actual take which would have been used would be the dialogue in most cases um, and absolutely everything else was a sort of meticulous process of of um, looking at the shots on on the monitor and then and then going finding a solution for it and so all the all the fireplaces were you know were myself and, and my sound team 
go, you know, use it, using the fireplaces we have at home or going to a bonfire or, you know, we had a, a, the library of fires alone was, I don't know, a good hundred deep or something because that was one of the main kind of sonic themes in the film, if you like. The, there's the, the scene where um, after the dancing, I think it's about half an hour in, after the dance scene where um, Lady Marlborough wheels the Queen out of the dance hall and, and down the corridor and um, there's a kind of a real thunder on, on uh, Olivia Coleman's face and it's wonderful and we took to reflecting that in the, in the rumble of the fireplace and put a kind of a slight musical tone through the wind with a, with a use of um, very sharp uh, EQ sort of spiking a particular frequency at a, at a musical note to reflect the, um, you know, the kind of the drama in her face. And um, yeah, so, so all those sounds were very much, um, we, we spent weeks building up a very big library of sounds from that house and from other sources. And we, we uh, helped with the, in, even in, during the picture edit, we were um, using that library to kind of supplement what was happening so that even the early drafts of the film would have all these kind of sound ideas involved. It's a very atmospheric film, and the sound design is a really big contributor to that. And how, since this is a period piece, you know, did that affect your approach going into it? I mean, you've spoken about how you made it happen, but how did you kind of plan this out? Yeah, well, we, um, I mean, obviously I've worked with Yorgos for quite a time, and, and when we were, um, when I was finishing up the, the mixing on The Killing of a Sacred Deer, the shoot was actually commencing on this film, so um, so we were uh, finishing up a sort of day's editing on Deer and then having conversations about how to approach the sound of this and, and what we would do to achieve a dramatic support for sound. And um, it wasn't really actually until we, we, you know, we recorded a lot of stuff and then it wasn't until we started looking at um, rough assemblies that we decided that there was a, a lot of scope for for including a kind of a kind of a world of winds and fireplace and fireplaces that sort of develop into a tonal theme um, which is something that sort of starts right at the very beginning of the, th- of the film and um, a- and we discovered that that could kind of run through to to ultimately reflect a lot of what I suppose is Olivia Olivia Coleman's character's sadness kind of towards the end of the film. But um, yeah, the approach was, um, uh, I guess, how was it different because it was a period film? It it was harder because you were constricted by, 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 by the kind of the, the, the sounds that you could actually use. So did you, how much control did you end up having over the sound part of it? Was it kind of Yorgos gave you directions and you did it or did you work together or was it more you? How did that work out? I guess Yorgos likes to, he kind of likes to work with people that he'll sort of choose. And I think he goes through a very rigorous process of that. And then he kind of just lets you get on with it. I mean, um, he was so busy in the pre-production on on the favourite when I was doing Deer that he kind of had to let me crack on with that to some degree um, on my own. So um, when it came to this, I guess he he certainly felt confident in letting me do it myself. But I know that talking to um, 
talking to other department heads, you know, they experience the same thing that Yorgos would just say, do your job and I'll, I'll let you know when I don't like what you're doing, basically. But um, yeah, he's a, a wonderful collaborator because he just lets you do what you want to do. He, he'll let you, um, he'll <laughs> a lot of the times I'll, I'd see him maybe a couple of times a week and he'd sort of say, well, okay, I'll come in at about 11.30 and we'd watch something for half an hour and then he'd say, well, let's go for lunch. And then we'd do that and that would be a longer period of time. And then maybe we'd discuss a few things on the film and he's, he's terribly polite, you know, he's a real gentleman. So he, he won't necessarily um, come down on you hard if he doesn't like something, but, but you will kind of, Notice that well, I said I took to noticing that his foot would start twitching if I thought he I was playing him something and he didn't like, and I, I'd know that as a sign I should probably remove that sound effect, for example. So were there a lot of edits? Did you see that foot twitching a lot, or was it kind of worked from the beginning? Oh, do you mean do you mean did 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 we find it straight away, or or did we did it take a while? Yeah, how quickly were you able to? Yeah. Oh no, yeah, I definitely got it wrong for a while. I mean, <laughs> you know, because when I read the script, I was. I was basically howling with laughter and, and thinking, wow, I can't wait to get stuck into this. And I was probably thinking a more slapstick thing and and kind of, you know, forgetting basically how sophisticated and refined Mr. Lanthimos is. And um, so initially when I did start putting sounds to the film, I was experimenting with much, um, much bolder and, and sort of slightly more comedic sounds, like, like when um, Emma Stone's character Abigail... Uh, Wax herself in the face with a book, and that's a nice sort of dull thump. But that was, occasionally, that was much more of a sort of a, a, a slightly sillier sound with a kind of broken nose crunch in it. And I know that sounds like quite a subtle thing, but it really does attenuate kind of the amount of overt comedy that you're you're imparting to the audience. So, um, yeah, my initial drafts were, were were very much the kind of ha ha, this is funny, and Yorgos was like, stop stop doing all that, you know, let's keep it a lot drier and. And, um, and and take those, you know, I found this recording of a duck that sounded like it was laughing. And I, kept, I took into a habit of trying to put that in every time something funny happened in the film. He was like, yeah, we don't need a duck laughter track, thank you very much. So, um, so yeah, we, I went through a process of that and then, um, and then it became a, a more refined, sophisticated thing. And then, and, and then really we, we were kind of building the way that the mix worked through a lot of the post-production period. Um, over a long time and it was really uh, a lot of the subtle details that you mentioned earlier I think um, came from the fact that um, rather than all rather than the the dialogue team the sound effects team the Foley team the music team all meeting at the final mix um, and then deciding how to put it together um, in those situations it's kind of hard to get uh, subtle details in sometimes because uh, you often don't have the time to see if they work because the, the subtle things sometimes just take a bit longer. And uh, in this instance, we, we were able to um, build a mix through over a period of a few months because Yorgos chose the music early on. So we we had all the ingredients that we needed and and we could start piecing it together. And, and that afforded us the time to to figure out where these little subtle pieces of sound could sit and then um, about halfway through the sound process we realised that the kind of the, the, the place that the film ends up wasn't really reflected in, in the way that the soundscape of the film was developing and, 
um, much of the music that's used in the film is um, kind of authentic Baroque music that was, for, you know, at the time written literally to be enjoyed in, in court and, you know, in, in a royal court and that would be something that people would be dancing to or having fun to and that was its purpose in the film too. So as a sort of development of the soundscape or an edit, if you like, was to um, take a sort of a selection of winds that we were using and fireplace sounds that were happening early on in the film and were supporting kind of dramatic tension and and occasionally being quite light-hearted and, and those would become basically just a much purer note, a much sort of simpler sound that would begin um, playing kind of underneath music pieces um, that were that were really reflecting more the kind of darker heart of the film as it emerges towards the end, ultimately to the point that, that these tones in the final scene kind of actually really kind of overtake the music. So yeah, I guess that was another big edit that happened. Did you, so before you started working on this, I know you were working on The Killing of a Sacred Deer, but did you have any time to research or find inspiration for this, or did you just go in and decide to wing it? Um, well, I'd always do as much research as possible. Um, I think, um, you know, I certainly was looking into, I did an awful lot of research of, of what was kind of available at the time and um, what kind of noises these big houses would make. And, for example, did they have plumbing, you know, and did they have sort of waste disposal pipes that would rattle and hum and, and you know, basically where, where my creative licence would lie. Um, so... I um I, I did a lot of research talking to people at Hampton Court Palace about how houses sounded in those days and, and the technology that was available in them. And um it turns out not an awful lot, but um and and also, you know, how the um the kind of the landscape of the country has changed and particularly, you know, what sounds of birds because they're they're a very important feature of what you kind of what you do here in the film is I was discussing with Yorgos, you know, how, how thick do we think the windows are here? Because I, I would imagine in those days the glass was pretty thin, so you're going to hear stuff from outside quite loudly, aren't you? And Yorgos was like, well, yeah, but look at the costumes. They're, you know, we're, we're taking licence. So, so, yeah, I did a lot of research on what kind of sounds were available in those days and what kind of things people would hear in, in, in that period, what the, the nature was, the flora and fauna, what kind of birds were available. And so, so I wouldn't use the sound of a bird that was that had perhaps migrated to become a feature of the English countryside more recently. Um, so I was basically yeah, finding out what could be used and then discussing with Yorgos what we should use and it was more along the lines of, you know, let, let's um, use creative license and, and use things that are helpful to us rather than going for out-and-out realism. Did you have any particular... It's not a documentary. Right. It's definitely not, but it's it's still great to watch anyway. Did you guys face any particular challenges with this one? The big challenge is, on a technical level, there was how to kind of remove the noise from the dialogue. A lot of the times, because the rooms were so big, if people um, walked in a room and then had to wait till they got to the other side of the room to start delivering their line then that's going to be a very long scene. Um, so so the, the actors, I think, were, were doing a lot of walking as they were talking, and that, that involved a, recording a lot of creaking floorboard noises as well. So there was a technical challenge of 
getting clean dialogue recordings and editing around lots of different syllables just to get that sort of thing straight because Yorgos and myself are, are really not keen at all on doing ADR, you know, sort of re-recording the the dialogue afterwards. And, um, and fortunately, we ended up with none of that on this film. Um, so there was that as a technical challenge. And, and probably the other big challenge was really finding finding how to how to give this palace its sound and its and its kind of its sound vibe and from that understanding what we could use and, and what we couldn't use and probably also i suppose another big challenge was something that kind of came late was, was yeah how to how to explore the darker heart of the of the film and, and have that reflected in the soundtrack yet not have it come across as a as a sort of alien element when it turns up sort of more halfway through the film. Basically. Right, it does have a significant tonal shift about halfway through the film. Um, and that was kind of, I was told I had about 20 minutes, so I, that's kind of all I had. But I did want to ask you, is there anything that you're working on next that you're excited about, that you can talk about at least? Um, yeah, I've um, been talking with uh, director Jonathan Glazer, who's... Um, he did a lovely film under the skin a few years back, and he's uh, gearing up to go into production soon on his next film. That um, that will be, uh, I think, simply astounding. I'm looking forward to that. Um, uh, so yeah, he's um, he's keeping me busy for a short while. But I think I'm not. I'm not sure I'm allowed to talk about it in terms of what it is. So I won't at this point. Okay, then well, I'll, I'll just have to wait and be excited for it. So I really appreciate you talking with me today. And I have to say, I loved The Favourite. And the sound was one of the things I noticed within about the first five minutes, how very well done it was, especially because I'm familiar with how very large those rooms were and very cold and creaky. So I was very impressed with how well you were able to bring it all together. Thank you very much. It was a real labour of love. Yes, and you can tell because it's it all works so perfectly together with Lanthimos's, you know, amazing everything else that that film has going for it. He he does get it right, doesn't he? I mean, yeah, the, the film's really quite well made in all departments, isn't it? I would have I would have hated to have been the one person who got his bit wrong. That would have been awful. It would be yes, and yeah, this was my most looked forward to movie this year, and I was. So glad to be able to say everything worked. I left the theater thinking, well, that was exactly what I was hoping for. It lived up to it, did it? It did, very much so. I love period pieces, and this was a great, great one. Yeah. No, when when Yorgo showed me the first kind of assembly of, of the film, I turned around to Martyrs and I was like, wow, did you mean to make something so entertaining? So it's fantastic. <laughs> it's brilliant, yeah. Yes. I really enjoyed working on it. I felt very lucky. I can totally see why. But yeah, thank you again for talking with me. And if that's all, then I really appreciate it. And I hope I get to hear from you again when you make your next film. I'd be glad to talk to you. I'll be in touch. Thank you, Katie. Yes, excellent. Have a great uh, rest of your evening, right? Yeah, thank you. Have a good day. Thank you so much for listening to the Next Best Picture podcast and our interviews with the editor for The Favorite, Yorgos Mavroparsidis, and the sound designer, Johnny Byrne. You can subscribe to the Next Best Picture podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player FM, Acast, CastBox, and now newly on Spotify. 
Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support. Head on over to Patreon, where for $1 minimum a month, you can get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, and we shall see you all next time. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.